Well, good morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Be looking at verses 1 through 11 today. Looking forward to this time in God's Word with you. Let's pray. Ask for the Lord to guide us in this time. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for instructing us in it and through it. Father, we often take for granted the scriptures. Lord, would you help us to realize the great blessing that we have now to come before you and to come as your people gathered here today to hear from you as you inspired these words. Lord, would you take them now and bring much fruit to bear in our lives to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are many things in life that we are not so sure about. Sometimes things that cause a lot of uncertainty in our lives. Where to live, maybe what job to take or not to take, where to go to school, who to date, maybe decisions regarding medical care. A lot of uncertainties, a lot of things that we face in life where we've got to make a decision, but we're just not so sure which direction to go, right? So many things in life that come our way leave us agonizing over what in the world to do. Well, there are some things in life that we can be absolutely certain of. We can list several things, but one of the certainties that we have as Christians, no matter what circumstances in the present may dictate, is that we have hope. When I talk about hope, I'm not talking about some kind of wishful thinking, like I hope it gets warmer today, or I hope that we don't have a bad winter. That's wishful thinking. Biblical hope is certainty. It's confidence. It's assurance. It's that which you can stake your life on, 100%. And in fact, it is that certainty that will help you navigate your way through and persevere in the midst of life's uncertainties. I like what Tim Keller said, former pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City. He wants to find hope as this, the life-shaping certainty of what you're going to have, but you don't yet have it. Notice what he says, life-shaping life certainty. That's what I'm talking about this morning. What we're looking at in Romans 5 verses 1 through 11 is life-shaping certainty. 
Pretty good, even if a Presbyterian did come up with it. All right? So what we're looking at today, because this matters. You're going to have a lot of uncertainties. You're going to have a lot of questions. You're going to have a lot of agony and pain and difficulty. And you need to know how to deal with those things. Well, you do so based upon the life-shaping certainty that you have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, the good news for you as a Christian is that no matter what you face in life or have to deal with, you can always live with certainty. You may have thousands of uncertainties, but this one absolute life-shaping certainty that we have in Christ will see you through to the end. And that's what you need to base your life upon, not the uncertainties that come your way. It's this that you need to deal with and, and bank your life on. And friends, this life-shaping certainty that we have in Christ flows from our justification in Christ. Paul has just spent the first four chapters of Romans detailing two things. He detailed for us our great problem that we are all sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. Chapters one through three and then the end of chapter three into chapter four, he has given the solution to that by saying that if you will believe, if you'll trust in Christ, turn from, from your life of sin and place your hope, not wishful thinking, your hope, your confidence, your faith in Jesus, you will be, you, that, that faith will be credited to you as righteousness. You'll be seen as righteous. Your sins will be forgiven. You'll be declared right in God's eyes. You may come out of chapter four thinking, well, this is all fine and good. I'm a sinner. God has provided the solution to my problem. I'm going to heaven. So what in the meantime? There's a lot of junk that I have to deal with now until I get there. What do I do in the, in the present? Glad you asked. Paul deals with that now in chapter five as he turns the corner with that common word that he likes, therefore. So I've titled this sermon, The So What of Justification. The So What of Justification means that you, friend, have a life-shaping certainty to build your life on in light of all that comes your way. Let's consider God's word together this morning, picking up in chapter five, verse one. Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, so since chapters one through four are true, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were yet st still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Justification by faith in Jesus Christ guarantees for us a certain future. Despite all of the present uncertainties and sufferings that might tell you otherwise. What we're going to look at here in Romans 5, 1 through 11 are three aspects of hope that we have. We're going to unpack that that word and as we see it referenced here in this passage, we're going to walk through this text and we're going to see what we have based upon our justification. Because you've been declared right in God's sight through faith in Jesus, here is what you have. Therefore, he says, since we've been justified by faith, these things, let's consider them together. First of all, Paul's going to encourage us with the fact that hope has been established. Hope established. We're going to see three things actually this morning. We're going to see hope established, hope cultivated, and hope guaranteed, right? That's for all the youth in case they check out after a long weekend. There's three points. Don't check out, all right? Hope established, hope cultivated, hope guaranteed. Let's walk through them together. Let's consider first of all hope established. The very first thing that Paul mentions as an implication of or benefit of our justification is the fact that we have peace with God. You see that there in the text? Verse one, since therefore we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the first thing we need to ask is what does he mean by peace? I mean, was Paul jamming out to the eagles, you know, with a peaceful, easy feeling kind of thing going on in the background as he's writing Romans? I doubt it. A lot of times we think about peace as that song, peaceful, easy feeling. And I'm not saying that there's not some kind of subjective feeling of peace that we experience. I think that we do experience that. A calmness, a a certainty that leads us to be more relaxed and confident. But Paul's pressing further into something more objective when he deals with this word peace. The Old Testament prophets would use this word peace to speak about the salvation that God would ultimately one day bring to his people. Really an eschatological viewpoint, looking far to the end that one day God's people will have peace, meaning salvation. So Old Testament prophets would often equate the word peace with salvation. In fact, it's another way to speak about salvation. could go to various places, Ezekiel chapter 34, where the prophet there speaks about the covenant of peace. Isaiah talks about the one who would come would, would be the prince of peace. Many places you could go in the Old Testament and see this concept of peace and how it's really referring to salvation, the deliverance. 
So Paul likely picks up on this language and he uses it here in Romans 5. He uses it here to to describe the reality of being in a relationship of peace with God. That's what he means. We have peace with God. And we don't use that language much, do we? Uh, As Christians, we should, but we don't typically, when we're talking about salvation, we don't talk about living now at peace with God. That's what Paul's saying. We have peace with God. Why do we have peace with God? Because prior to our salvation, we were at enmity with God. We were his enemy. Look down at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Paul understood understood. And we should understand today that outside of Jesus, you, friend, are an enemy of God, and God is an enemy of you. We don't hear that. We don't think that way. We don't think about God being an enemy or we being an enemy of God, but that left to you, left to your sin, that's what you are. You're at war with him. And all Paul is saying is he's saying, now because you've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, that war has ceased and you now are at peace with him. You've gone from being in conflict against him to being an ally with him. It's a beautiful picture. Having peace with God means that we enjoy now a positive relationship with him, whereas before we lived in hostility to him and he to us. You'll notice this peace again comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. The peace that we're able to have with God can only come through Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. Why? Because he took our place as a substitute, bearing the full weight and guilt of our sin as he hung on the cross. Paul would write in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, speaking about Jesus, for in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So through Jesus, God's righteous anger, his wrath against us is removed and we enter, because it's poured out upon him there at the cross, and we enter now a position of peace with God. It's a change of status. It's what Paul's getting at here. Because of our justification, our status has changed. We go from being an enemy to friend. More than friend, adopted son and daughter of the king. Friends, one of the things that we need to understand about this peace that we have with God is that we never initiated it. God would have been right to leave us as his enemy and treat us as his enemy because of our rebellion and sin against him. But no, because of the love in which with he loved us and the mercy in which he extended towards us, he sought to give us peace. He initiates this peace process By coming to us, pursuing us. Had he not done that, friend, we would know nothing of peace with God. Nothing. So friends, this is is critical. If you're you're here as, as 
as an unbeliever. Gathered with us, maybe you're here with a friend or family member and, and you've, you've not trusted in Jesus. You would not consider yourself a Christian. And the, the simple truth of the matter from our passage today, and we could look at others, is that if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you remain as an enemy of God. I would just ask you, friend, when you think about it that way, when you think about being an enemy of God, the sovereign ruler and creator of all creation, the one who rules and reigns the universe, I mean, he speaks and massive things happen. The very one to whom you will give account one day, do, do, you, do you think that it is in your best interest to stand at odds with God? Do you think that's a good place for you? And I would say to you, when you think about it that way, of course that's not a good place for you to be. To be an enemy of God will be, will, will de- will, means definite doom. You're going down. Even on our best day, we could not stand against him. So friend, the hope that we have in the midst of all of this is, is what we have in Jesus is, is access to God. We now have peace with God. You can have peace with God if you'll turn from your sin and place your hope and trust in Jesus. Peace is available to you. And we would encourage, exhort you even, and would love to walk with you about what it means to place your hope in Christ. And we would even encourage you not to even leave here today without knowing this hope in which we speak of. Do not remain an enemy of God. Don't stand at odds with him. Christians, this hope that we have, this peace that we've been given, this hope that's been established with God is the very foundation and basis from which everything else happens. How you think, how you Conduct yourself, how you live your life, the decisions you make, the way that you think your way through life and, and, motiv- and, and go about your, your day and the things that motivate your heart are based upon the peace that you now have with God. It's a great implication for us, even in how we pursue peace with others. If God has saw fit to pursue peace with us, then that friend ought to mean that even in our hardest of relationships, we are called then to pursue peace with others because God has pursued peace with us. I mean, everything changes. You've been plucked out of the enemy's camp and placed within this glorious kingdom that is victorious. That would change everything. Hope established. And let's consider hope cultivated. See that in verses two through eight as he goes on and talks about this access into God's grace in which we stand. Notice he says in verse two, through him, Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice. Or another word that could be there, boast in hope of the glory of God. A couple of things that Paul helps us see here in light of the hope that's been established is that this hope that we have, God continues to grow and strengthen and cultivate. 
First of all, we have this, this hope that's cultivated in a, as we look forward to a future glory. Notice what he says, we rejoice or boast in hope of the glory of God. Now, when you hear that of the glory of God, there's, uh, don't let the English phrase trip you up. Because typically we'd think God's glory, his glory is on display to the glory of God. Everything that we do, we do to God's glory. When you understand the, the structure and what Paul's looking at here, while he does have in mind the glory of God, God's glory, I think what he's getting at here is the glory which believers will enjoy. He's speaking about the fact that as those who once fell short of God's glory, because of the peace we have with God, because of the hopes that it's been established with us, we now are going to share in that glory. So here the glory of God is a gift of God's grace that points to the fullness of salvation, a state of God-likeness that will be conformed, Romans 8, to the image of Christ, that will be restored to every believer on that final day. Friends, what we're being told here is that because you've been justified by faith, God has promised to gloriously transform you. Think about that, especially in light of redemptive history. When sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, there was a barrier that was immediately placed between man and God. It's the angel there at the garden, they're banished from the garden. There's this separation now that exists between God and us. And all the way through the Old Testament, you see this exemplified time after time after time again. tabernacle comes. Structure is set up and the holy of holies, the presence of God is said to dwell and no one could go into that room except one person, the high priest, and one time of year at that. So there's this restricted access to God because of our rebellion and sin. Same is true with the temple. So time and time again, we see the presence and glory of God was off limits to the people of God. They had no access to him except through the high priest. But now in Christ, access is granted. You now have this access to him. Now through him, we have also obtained access by faith to what? His grace. For what purpose? In which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We have this access to the grace of God which helps us to stand in the hope that we will be like Christ one day. If you flip over just a page and consider Romans 8, one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible, I'm tempted to not camp out here too long. Let me just give it a little taste. Paul says in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, what? In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This future glory that awaits us. Our hope is being cultivated in that light, with that promise that awaits us. 
That's easy to understand. We get it. We've been saved. We now have peace with God and we have a promised future. That's great, right? Praise God. We have a a promised future, but what about the present? I need help today. Well, we have a hope that's cultivated that assists us in our present struggle as well. Notice what Paul says. He says at the end of verse two, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Then look at verse three. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What did, you, what did Paul just say? Verse two, we're with him. We have peace with God. We have access into his grace in which we stand. We rejoice, we boast as we anticipate the glory of God, the, the fact that we will be made like him and we will share in that glory one day. And all of this mess will be resolved. But then verse three says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. How, how can Paul say that? What he's saying is that there is a direct connection between our past justification and our present struggle as we hope for the future glory that awaits us. There's a past, present, and future reality to this passage. Past justification being declared right with God has present implications as we long for the future. Do you see that in the passage? Here he mentions suffering. Suffering's here just being a, a general term referring to the trouble or afflictions that we have as believers. It can mean anything that troubles you. Doesn't necessarily have anything specific in mind, but we have a plethora of afflictions that we endure, some more intense than others, but we have trouble and pressures that come our way. And Paul is saying that because of our past justification and our present peace with God, as we anticipate our future, we have encouragement in the present. Think about that. God's care for us is so meticulous that he is not just concerned with a past declaration of righteousness. He's not just concerned with giving us a future glorification. He is concerned down to the very level and detail of our present sufferings. It's huge. God cares so much for you that even in your mundane afflictions that this world will bring your way, he has design and purpose. He is amazingly sovereign in that way. Then the question is, okay, we rejoice in our sufferings. How can we do that? What, why? Why would we do that? Well, let's consider the purpose of our struggle. 
He says, suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. So any type of suffering or affliction produces the need for endurance, doesn't it? And just think about that, right? When you're being afflicted, when trouble is coming your way, you have two options. You can cave or you can endure, you can persevere, you can keep going. And Paul says, this type of suffering that comes our way produces the need for endurance. He doesn't give you an option to just cave. And in turn, that endurance produces character. Here, the the idea of character is a provenness, a character that has stood up under close examination. And such a proven character will have an even stronger confidence in the future glory that awaits us. So the reality here is that when Paul writes more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. What he is saying is that the reality of our present afflictions serve to strengthen our hope. Friends, by the time you take your last breath on this world, as a Christian, all of the previous afflictions and trials and struggles that you have faced in this life will have strengthened your hope on that day. This is, this is so interesting. I mean, we do everything we possibly can to avoid trials, don't we? I don't know anybody that I'm aware of that wakes up every day with the desire and ambition to find as much affliction and trouble as they could possibly find. If that is you, you are sick, (laughs) right? We do the opposite. We do everything we possibly can to avoid trouble, to avoid affliction, to avoid conflict, to avoid this. We don't want those things, but yet we're being told here, those things are one of the very tools God uses to sanctify us. So sometimes, some of the very things we're seeking to avoid are the very gifts of God to us to make us more like Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that we should go around just causing trouble for ourselves. Because as we cause more trouble for ourselves, we're going to be more like Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying it should change how we do view the afflictions and troubles and difficulties and challenges that do come our way. Just by natural default of living in a sinful world, whether that's through our own sin or the sin of the world in general or just life in a fallen world. It should change how you see that. I mean, how often do you look at trouble and think, isn't God amazing? How many of you, whatever afflictions or troubles you had this week, how many, how many of you, that was your immediate thought? Isn't God amazing? That's how we should respond. To think that he cares so much for me and for you, that he is willing to ordain and even allow certain afflictions into our lives so as to strengthen our hope. Friends, we can glory in our afflictions. We can rejoice in our sufferings. 
because we know that God is up to something good and glorious. We may never know this side of heaven the depths and details of what that means, but I can tell you this. I can't tell you everything that God's up to. I'm not him, don't know him in his thinking to that level of degree. I know what he's told me in the Bible, and so that's what I'm gonna spend my life trying to consume. So I, don't, I can't pretend to think that God's doing all of these very details. I know he's doing millions of things we can't see. But I can tell you with 100% confidence that in your sufferings, God is strengthening your hope. That's what the Bible tells me. He's making your hope stronger and more firm. He's making you more like Christ. That's what I do know. So friends, when trouble comes your way, when trouble comes my way, we need to consider first the fact that God is going to do me good. As painful and as difficult and as trying as this may feel and weight upon my shoulders, God is doing something amazing. I love the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way by William Cooper. Third verse, I think it is, where he says, this is my, one of my favorite lines in the whole hymn. I just think about it. Every time I've been able to sing this song, his purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. Here's my favorite line. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. We consume a lot of bitter buds, don't we? A lot of taste that just feels so bitter. Friend, we know that one day that that bitterness will turn into sweetness. This doesn't mean, by the way, that you simply have to suck it up while you're here and suffer now while you experience glory later. I don't think that's the way Paul's saying it. Just suck it up, suffer now, glory later. It's not, it's not the tone and the intent of these instructions. The Christian life isn't a call to simply embrace being miserable to the glory of God, nor is it to see affliction as a lack of faith, as the prosperity teachers would tell you. Rather, we see affliction that God is up to something big, even in our troubles, and therefore our hope in him is now strengthened. That's the purpose of the struggle. What about the provision? How do we get that? How, how do we grow in that? Notice he says, after he goes through that list in verses three and four, that sufferings produce endurance, endurance character, character hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because, that because there in verse five is, is crucial. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul explains here that there's a purpose in the present afflictions we endure, ultimately to mature us, to strengthen our hope, so that we surely will stand on that last day. But the reason that we can have that assurance and confidence is because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on in verses six through eight to demonstrate this amazing, abundant love that God has given us. So here, notice here, there's both a subjective reality, verse five, that God has poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. 
And the objective proof that he's done that as he looks at verses six through eight to show that God has demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now it's great to have that verse that we all know so well in its context, right? It's in the context of encouraging and strengthening and cultivating your hope in the midst of present sufferings. Love is contrasted here with human love. Verse seven, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse six, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. This love that he speaks of in verse five is demonstrated based upon the work of Christ in verses six through eight. Paul's point here is simply to say that God's love has been poured into our hearts, which means we will experience intense feelings of love for God, and that will ebb and flow in our lives. But it does mean that we can be certain of God's love and promise to see us through to the end. Our hope is cultivated. Our hope of receiving the promises of God in the future is certain because God makes us beneficiaries of his loving kindness to us in the present and demonstrated it in the past. So friends, when you look at your difficult circumstances and you look at your afflictions, do not see them as a lack of God's love for you. When you look at your afflictions and your troubles and your trials and your your struggles in this life, you see them as a demonstration of God's love being poured into your heart to see you through those times based upon what he's already done for you in the past. You should look at your troubles. Be reminded that God's love has been poured into your hearts to enable you to walk in the midst of those things based upon what Jesus has done for you. Friends, our future is certain based upon what God has accomplished in the past. And friends, if you're here today as a Christian, this is your guarantee. This is a promise. Why is that important for us to remember? Well, because we're gonna be tempted. We're gonna be tempted from time to time to gauge our spiritual welfare based upon some present circumstances. We're gonna encounter present troubles, present afflictions, and we're going to then allow those afflictions to gauge our spiritual standing before God. We will be tempted to think things like, as a Christian, to think things like, if I was really living a righteous life, I surely wouldn't be enduring this. If I was being a faithful Christian, surely I wouldn't have to go through this. It's not a right way to think. All of us are going to go through afflictions. All of us are going to go through difficulties and sufferings in this world. Some will have it more intense than others and it's gonna ebb and flow throughout the course of your own individual life. You're going to face those things. All of us will. And it's in the midst of that that I don't want you to think and I don't think Paul wants you to think and especially the Holy Spirit doesn't want you to think that somehow God's love has, been, has abandoned you. No, it's in the midst of the affliction that God's love is, is, is relevant and present and there all the more. 
We even be tempted to think that if things are not good in the present, then somehow our future standing with God must be in jeopardy. Friend, not so. If you're in Christ, your future is certain. Certain. Friends, if you focus only on your present circumstances, your future assurance might be undermined. That's the point of what Paul's getting at here. As he connects the past to the present to the future, you need to look back and de- delight in your past justification in Christ so as to help you gauge and navigate and persevere in the present through your afflictions, knowing what you've been promised in the future. The problem is, is if you don't keep all of those before you and you only focus on the present, then you're gonna lose sight of what happened in the past and what, what awaits you in the future. Hope cultivated, but then hope guaranteed. And we've said that throughout. Hope guaranteed. Look at verse nine. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's what we've talked about earlier in chapter four. Through justification, we are saved from the wrath of God. Forgiven of our sins, wrath of God fell on Jesus. And therefore we are no longer recipients of that. Verse 10 For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. This this language that he uses throughout, much more, much more, more than that. You see that throughout the the course of these 11 verses. So what he's getting at here, he's, he's basically saying, friends, if God has done the hard work of removing his wrath from you, then More so, even more so, the the easy work will come, that he will save you and bring you into his kingdom. More than that, we also rejoice through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, more than that, we also boast through whom we have received reconciliation. Friends, this hope is guaranteed because of the peace that God has brought to you, the justification that you have, the peace that you now enjoy the persevering grace that you have in the midst of your present struggles and afflictions and the future guaranteed because we have now received reconciliation. We've been reconciled to God through Christ. Verses nine and 10, he really just repeats what he's already stated. Justified in the past, currently reconciled in the present and most certainly will be saved and delivered in the future. And as a result, verse 11, we rejoice. This is the great end to which all of these truths culminate, that we rejoice, that we boast in God. We don't take credit for any of this. This is God's doing. This is God's work. This is the peace he brought, the reconciliation he initiated and established with us. Even in our afflictions, the work that he's doing to strengthen and cultivate our hope. Therefore, we boast in him. We rejoice in him. The glory of justification is that we were reminded that our salvation from beginning to end is the work of God, that he's declared us righteous, he's making us righteous, and he will establish us as righteous one day. Now just imagine, imagine walking on a swinging rope bridge in the midst of a stormy day. It's the rope bridge that's hanging between two cliffs. I've never 
It's been a while since I've been on a rope bridge, but even on a calm day, they can be a little shaky. So just imagine being on a rope bridge when the wind is howling and the, and the, and the rain is pouring. When you venture out on that tightrope, you will likely feel insecure. Rain, the rain, the wind, rope bridge swaying. But friend, when you stop and you realize that that rope bridge is unbreakably tied to two ends, your assurance and your confidence will be strengthened so as to make your journey on to your destination. Friends, life in the present is like being on that rope bridge. Sometimes things feel stable, at other times you wonder if it's going to hold together. But when you realize that that rope bridge of life is anchored by our past justification and anchored by our future promise of glorification, then friends, as long as that wind and rain comes, let that rope bridge swing and sway because you have your eyes focused on the future and what Christ has guaranteed for you based upon his work in the past. His justification matters because of what it gives you with hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for this reminder today that this hope that we have in Christ is one that you have established, one that you cultivate, and one that is guaranteed. Father, we thank you that we have wonderful assurance in the midst of this present difficult age that you are present and that you are at work and that you're doing far, far more than we can think or imagine. Father, would you help us to rejoice in hope in the glory of God? But Lord, even more than that, would you help us because of that great promise that we would even be willing to rejoice in our present afflictions. Father, that's gonna require a work of your grace in our lives because that is, not, that is not how we often respond. Our tendency is to grumble, to complain, to grow weary and despair. Father, you've called us to boast, to rejoice, because you, God, are at work. Father, would you help us to do that? Would you help us to, to be firmly reminded of this great work of past justification and this wonderful promise of future glorification, Lord, so that in the middle times, right now, in the midst of life, that we will persevere with our eyes firmly fixed on Christ, knowing that he will hold us fast, firm to the end. Father, if there are any here today that they don't have that assurance, they don't have that confidence, they don't have that hope, Lord, I pray that you would impress upon their hearts even now to speak with someone, to call out to Christ that he would save them. Father, would you do this work in us? We need you to do so. We pray this in Jesus' name.